Good evening. Please turn with me and your copy of God's Word to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We will turn our attention again to Paul's passage of thanksgiving there in the beginning and look specifically at verses 8 and 9 tonight. Paul has thus far spent five verses of this letter encouraging the believers in various ways, but also subtly, but deliberately, I believe, shifting the focus away from these self-impressed church members back to God. They were proud of their gifts, of their strength, of their skills, of their rhetorical ability, And they had forgotten who they were before Christ, and they had forgotten who they were in Christ. They forgot the past, and they forgot the present. And that Christological amnesia, we could say, that is the forgetting of who we are in Christ, is a real and constant temptation. We forget who we were before Christ in the past. We who were needy and sinful and haters of God outside of his family and under condemnation. But we also forget who we are in Christ in the present. We're united by his Holy Spirit to the true and faithful son, Jesus. And when we forget our union to Christ, all sorts of sinful behaviors begin to creep in as had happened in Corinth. And so our Christological amnesia of the past and the present makes us vulnerable to all kinds of moral decay and temptation as we'll see tonight. Let's read together the Thanksgiving section, verses 4 through 9 of 1 Corinthians 1, and then we'll focus on 8 and 9. Hear the word of our Lord. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Father, we need you to speak tonight through your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit, ministering among us, Lord. Open our eyes to see where we are out of alignment with your will and show us the grace to be found in Christ. Cleanse us by your word. Make us holy. Conform us to the image of your Son by fellowship that we have in him. In Christ's name, amen. Tonight we will conclude our study of this theological Thanksgiving passage by meditating on what is an especially sweet conclusion that Paul gives to this Thanksgiving prayer. Paul concludes this section of Thanksgiving by looking to the future. In the preceding verses, he had already addressed what God had done in the past. Right, Verse 4, he gave them grace in Jesus Christ. He enriched them in Christ in every way. Verse 6, he confirmed the testimony that was among them. But God's not only acted in the past, he's also currently acting among the members in Corinth. Verse 7, he switches to the present tense. 
You are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord. Present action of God, past action of God. And then our text tonight, he switches tenses again to the future. Verse 8, who will sustain you to the end in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so let's look at verses 8 and 9 by answering a series of questions. First question, what's happening? What is the action? What's going on? Why is Paul thankful? What's the future action that God is thank, or that Paul is thankful for from God? And the action being done is that God will sustain them. He will sustain them. He will confirm the Corinthians, we could translate it. It's the same verb that's used in verse 6, where Paul speaks of the testimony of Christ being confirmed among them. And as we mentioned a few weeks ago, this verb takes on a legal aspect, even a commercial aspect by the time Paul is writing. Christ's testimony is confirmed. It's guaranteed. It's stamped. It's been strengthened, we could say. It's binding, irrevocable. And similarly, Paul is saying here that because of the grace of the Holy Spirit's work in the hearts of the Corinthian believers, they have been united to Christ, and it is Christ who will hold them fast. It is Christ who will sustain them. He guarantees them. He will uphold them. He uses similar language elsewhere in his letters. The same verb, actually. 2 Corinthians 1.21, Paul says that it is God who establishes or confirms us in Christ. Colossians 2.7, Paul uses the same verb to say that we are rooted and built up in Christ. Firmly established in Christ. Paul is emphasizing here that the Corinthians have security in their faith. God has already enriched them with every spiritual gift necessary, but he also will be sure to hold them safe to the very end, to make them steadfast, to preserve them from falling, we could say. And this sustaining to the very end is what theologians call final perseverance or perseverance of the saints. It means that all who are born again will be kept by God himself and will persevere as Christians until they enter the grave. It's taught many places in Scripture. We could look at Jesus' words in John 6, for example. Jesus says, And this is the will who sent, of Him who sent me, that is the Father, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given to me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. There's no wavering. There's no equivocation about what He's saying. Everyone who looks upon the Son and believes will have eternal life and will be raised on the last day. There's no contingencies, no doubt, no plan B. All of those given to the Son by the Father will believe and by believing will be sustained and confirmed until the last day. Jesus will lose none of them. Nothing that has been given to the Son will be lost. And that's good news. Jesus is not a clumsy, bumbling Savior. He's not inept. He's not incompetent. He's not forgetful. He's very diligent to care for each and every one of his sheep. He dotes upon his bride with divine attention and care. Nothing can come from outside of his vision. Nothing is capable of overwhelming our good shepherd. Nothing can overpower him. Nothing can slip through his fingers and get past his grip. Which means that none of his people will be lost. We could look later to John 10, 27-30, where Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them life, and they will never perish. And no one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. 
Jesus is talking about those who had been given him by the Father. He has given them life, and they will never perish. No one can snatch them. No one can pluck them from his hand. Nobody's able to swindle God, to bamboozle him out of his possessions. Nobody can trick God out of his prize. Regarding this text, there's a theologian named John Murray who wrote a wonderful book called Redemption Accomplished and Applied. If you haven't read it, it's short. It was his Sunday school lessons on the doctrine of salvation. Very, very good. He says, The guarantee of infallible preservation is that the persons given to the Son are in the Son's hand. And though they are given to the Son, they are mysteriously also in the Father's hand. From the hand of neither can anyone snatch them. This is the heritage of those who are given by the Father. What he's saying is that Jesus can speak of us both being in the Father's hand and of being given to the Son because both are true. The fullness of God, the entirety of the Godhead, all three persons are involved in our being kept safe until the day of redemption. The Father infallibly and perfectly elects according to His sovereign and good will. He predestines His people for life through the sacrifice of his son and those whom the father elects are given to the son to be the bride of his own possession these are the ones whose salvation is purchased on the cross whose salvation is certain whose redemption is secure and it's that salvation that is the ground of their perseverance those whom the father elects and gives to the son are and those whom the son dies to redeem are then effectually called into salvation through the work of the holy spirit The Spirit is sent to unite the elect to the Son, and the fruit of that effectual calling is belief. We believe. This is what Paul is describing in Romans 8, where we were earlier. Another passage that beautifully explains the hope that we have of our being upheld by Christ. Hear the words of Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those that are called according to His purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The ones who are called according, uh, the called ones are called by God according to his purpose. In fact, his purpose, the text explains, is prior to our calling. He had a purpose before we were called. And he goes on to say that those whom he foreknew beforehand are also predestined. And those whom are predestined are also called. And those whom are called are justified. Everyone who is a believer is so because they were foreknown and predestined. A believer is a believer precisely because he or or she has been called and has been justified in Christ. And if they have been called and justified, they will be glorified. That's the emphasis that Paul's putting on the text. There's no possibility of failure in God's plan or redemptive purposes. He won't predestine and call someone, but not complete the mission and bring them all the way home. It's impossible to conceive of God's predestining purposes to be defeated. It's an impossibility in Paul's theology. Not even an Arminian would say that, actually. Further, God would not effectually unite someone to Christ, thereby granting them justification, and then let them fall away. None of my sheep will be lost. No one can snatch them out of my hand. And we need to realize what's at stake if we deny this doctrine. If saints, if genuine, real saints can fall away and be finally lost, 
then we're saying that the called, the foreknown, the predestined, the called, the justified, are lost. But that's exactly what Paul is arguing against in Romans 8. He says those whom God calls and justifies will also be glorified, which is the final event in our being conformed to the image of God's own Son. The denial of perseverance, of final perseverance, contradicts the explicit force and plain reading of Paul's teaching here. But even more than that, the denial of what Paul teaches about perseverance of the saints in 1 Corinthians 1, in Romans 8, what Jesus teaches in John 6 and John 10, many other passages, radically impacts our Christian life. If you believe that you're being held in justification, being declared righteous in God, is on the basis of your performance, then you will inevitably end up in one of two dangerous places. Right? You'll either be a nervous wreck, full of anxious worry because you're looking at your performance. You'll be analyzing. You'll be checking your heart constantly. You'll be worried that you have some sort of unconfessed, unrepented sin that may come back and condemn you on the last day. Even though you tried your best. You never truly have peace, never truly have comfort, never truly have assurance. You're anxious because you never can truly know that you will make it to the end. What if something happens tomorrow that I can't handle? You can't know. You can hope, you can pray, but you cannot rest. The other alternative, if you deny this doctrine, is you live a life of self-deception and pride. You look at yourself and you have confidence in your security because you've got it all under control. I'm a pretty good guy. I'm doing just fine. I'll be all right tomorrow because I've been so good today. But to do that is exactly what Paul is undercutting in 1 Corinthians 1. Paul has taken great care to remove from the Corinthians any possibility of them boasting in self and is instead trying to replace it with confidence in Christ. And that's what we're called to do, to trust. To trust that it is Christ who has saved us, and it's on the basis of grace and grace alone. And that grace is multifaceted. It includes not merely foreknowledge and predestination, not only election and effectual calling, not only union with Christ and faith and repentance and conversion, but it includes the promise that Christ will finish the good work that He has begun in us. The Father doesn't give to the Son a people for the Son to drop and to lose. He gives to the Son a bride. A bride whom He cherishes. And cherishes to the degree that He is willing to lay down His own life for her. That's how much He cherishes His bride. And how great of care He seeks to take care of her. He loves her. He died for her. And He continues to serve her by washing her with the water of the Word. He grants her continued faith and repentance. He grants her continued growth and holiness. He washes her of every spot and wrinkle of sin. He takes great care to see her sustained and cared for to the very end. And he will not abandon her before the great wedding day to come. He's working. Even now, through this sermon and thousands other around the world on this Lord's Day. To keep and to sustain his people to the very end. So take Comfort, dear saints, in the knowledge that Christ is a faithful husband and he will not let his bride down. God will not justify you today and then reject you tomorrow. His word is sure. His atonement is complete and his redemption is 
confirmed. It's confirmed by the resurrection. That's the proof that God has accepted the sacrifice of His Son. You will be sustained to the very end. And when you're struck in this life with the fiery darts of doubt and Satan is again coming at you and telling you that you're unfit to be called a Christian because you've sinned again, then you remind yourself of this truth that God will hold me fast until the end. He will sustain you. It's not the strength of your grip on Christ that keeps you afloat. It's Christ's grip on you that's keeping you afloat. To say it another way, the object of our faith, that is Christ, is the determining quality of your faith, not the strength of your belief. It's the strength of Christ's grip on you. It's not how perfectly we walk in His law in this life. It's not how much Bible we know. It's not even the great gains and holiness we make, however wonderful those things are. It is Christ and our union with Him that keeps us in the faith. It was true for Corinth. And it's true for us. And so let us not fall for that great lie that we're doing all right. We got it under control. E each of us. Even if we have the greatest of theological precision or spiritual gifting like the Corinthians have. Can fall into the trap of boasting and standing in our own strength. We forget that even our possessing faith at this very instant is but another evidence of grace and the fruit of Christ's ongoing work holding you by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We need Christ every moment to hold us faithful. And every moment He does is but another testimony of grace to His faithfulness in our lives. Praise God that we have such an attentive and faithful Redeemer who will sustain us to the very end. He will confirm us in faith and He has guaranteed our salvation through the ongoing work that He does in our hearts to keep us. God will sustain us to the very end. But our next question to answer is this. In what way will we be kept to the end? In what way will we be kept to the end? It's not enough that we merely be kept around until the day of the Lord. Unsure of our condition when we arrive to that day. And the good news that Paul reminds Corinth here in verse 8 is that they will be guiltless on that day. Verse 8, He will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. It wouldn't merely be good news, it wouldn't be good news for Him to merely say that Christ will keep you in existence until the last day. He's doing that for unbelievers as well. But that's not good news for them. What makes it good news for us is that we will be held guiltless on that day and Paul is picking up language he says the day of our Lord Jesus Christ which is an explicitly Christ-centered application of a phrase used throughout the Bible the day of the Lord throughout the Old Testament and I won't chase down all the references but you can read in Joel chapter 2 and Joel chapter 3 and Amos chapter 5 and other places about the day of the Lord the day of reckoning the day of judgment God is called judge multiple places in the Old Testament. Genesis 18, Abraham says, shall the judge of all the earth not do what is right? God is judge. And interestingly, he's judge ever before the law is given on Mount Sinai. God is judge ever since the first angelic being turned away from him and fell. Psalm 82 says that God 
calls all the other judges into the courtroom. He takes all of the earthly judges and he puts them on the dock. He's the great judge of the judges. Psalm 94 refers to God as the judge of the entire earth. Nobody is outside of his jurisdiction and no one will escape the scales of his justice. And the New Testament gives us even more clarity on what this judge and what this day of judgment will look like. Paul in many places doesn't merely speak of the day of the Lord generically. He speaks specifically about the day of Jesus Christ or the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's because the New Testament teaches us that the Father has given the responsibility of judgment to the Son. John 5 teaches us, Jesus says, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Christ is given the authority to judge by the Father Himself. Nobody can claim that the Father is being unfair in judging mankind, as if it would be unfair for God to judge man. Well, either way, now the Son of Man, the God-Man Himself, is going to judge mankind. It's His day. Similarly, Paul says in 2 Timothy 4 that Christ is the judge of the living and the dead. Paul says the same thing when he speaks at Mars Hill, Acts 17. Peter says same language, Acts 10, 42. The, ordained, the one ordained by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. The Son is specifically given this responsibility of judging. And let me mention one more thing about this day of our Lord Jesus Christ, this day of judgment. That day will not be God holding up our good works, looking at our bad works, and weighing them to determine whether or not we have enough good to get us into heaven. That's not it at all. That's what the world thinks will happen. And not unsurprisingly, when you ask people, most of them think their good works happen to outweigh all their bad. No, that's not what's going to happen. The day of judgment will instead be the public declaration of our position relative to Christ. That is, God in Christ will proclaim to the whole of creation the redemptive status of each of us. And the judgment will be simple. Are you found in Christ or not? If you died in Christ, believing in Him, upheld in Him, then you will be proclaimed guiltless on the day of judgment. That's great news. No accusation, no forgotten sin, no dark secret, no forgotten fault can possibly override the verdict of guiltless that each believer will be given on that day. God will look at each of us and He will see us as sparkling and white because of the sacrifice of the Son made on our behalf. And because of the acceptable sacrifice made by Jesus for his people, we will be told, well done. You may enter into the joy of paradise for all eternity. But for those who die outside of Christ, the day of judgment, the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, will be but the first step of an eternity of misery and pain. Rather than having a Savior to intercede on your behalf, rather than having a Holy Spirit who is advocating for you, you stand naked and alone on the dock. Nowhere to hide. You will be called to account for every single sinful desire and action you've ever had. And your prosecutor will not be a man. It will not be a mere man who looks at the outside. It will be God Himself who looks at the heart. 
And his all-seeing eyes will gaze into the sinful crevices of your soul you didn't even know you had. He sees your sinful thoughts and your murderous motives and your covetous desires that linger deep in your soul. And he will bring each one of them to light. And because you have no sufficient Savior, you will stand exposed before his judgment and you will be declared guilty. And he will dole out judgment according to your works. He is a holy and righteous God, which means that he necessarily and will punish sin. As Paul reminds us in verse 9, God is faithful, which works for the benefit of the believers, but for the unbelievers. God's faithfulness is manifested in the full and righteous fury that he will unleash upon those that remain hardened in their sin and rejecting the offer of the Son. So this is, if this is you, don't cling to your sin one more day. Today can be the offer, the day of your salvation. And you can have the blessings of salvation that have been described to you from Scripture this very night. Do not wait on this offer because the day of the Lord could be today. We are not promised another tomorrow. Flee from the wrath to come and fly to Christ where you can receive a shield and refuge from the terror that will be released upon the unbelieving in that day, the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you do come to Him and trust in Him and receive Him as the faithful Savior that He is, then you will have the benefits described in this passage. God is faithful, which means that if you come to Him, He will surely grant you the benefits of salvation, including perseverance, security, rest in the faith, and being declared guiltless on the day of judgment. Come to Him and receive the benefit and the blessing, one of which is described in the second half of verse 9, being called into the fellowship of His Son, which is how Paul closes his thanksgiving. A final reminder that these blessings of salvation are not merely legal. They're not merely transactional. They're relational. We're not merely saved by the commercial transaction of the son purchasing redemption of slaves to sin at a great cost, though he did do that. We're reminded that we've been personally called into fellowship, into communion, to koinonia, he says, with the son. Elsewhere, Paul uses the language of being adopted. We're treated as God's own family. Whatever the son has earned, we share in that. Whatever graces the Son has merited, whatever access to the Father, whatever joys, whatever rewards, we get to share. We get to taste in that good news. We get to taste of the glory of being declared blameless and guiltless on the last day. We get to have our good works rewarded because of the work of mediation that Christ does on our behalf. We get to have eternal access to God in heaven. We get to enjoy a world remade, free from the scars of sin. We get to experience eternal life in bodies that are unshackled from the chains of mortality and decay. We get to see our brothers and sisters who have died before us in the faith. We get to testify with others the faithfulness of Christ in our lives from beginning to end. And we get to enjoy the company of the great bridegroom without end. In conclusion, each of these benefits, each of our benefits are, there, are ours not because of our own strength, not because we held so tightly in our faith, 
Not because of our understanding and insight. And not because we were more faithful than the next guy. Each of these benefits and blessings are ours because of the faithfulness of God to call us into the fellowship of the Son according to His mercy. Christ was faithful and because He was faithful, we taste of the rewards according to His marvelous grace. That was true in Corinth. And for that truth, Paul was thankful. May we be thankful as well. Let's pray. Holy Father, your marvelous gift of grace in Christ is is astounding. That you would take sinners and wash them and make them clean and bring them not merely out of darkness and into light, but into your very own household, into the fellowship of your Son, into the communion of your Son. May we always be astounded, staggered, by this act of grace and mercy. May it continually keep us thankful and humble and joyful and quick to proclaim the glories of your grace to those around us. Encourage us, Lord. Sustain us to the very end and hold us that we may be guiltless on the last day. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.